Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Expeditors Podcast, where we look at the logistics and freight forwarding industry through the lens of a global logistics provider. I'm your host, Chris Parker, and today we're revisiting supply chain resiliency, but this time we're focusing on why it can be difficult to attain, understanding resiliency as a goal for your organization, and we'll cover some key drivers to get you started with an assessment. We'll also talk about resiliency versus agility, and if you haven't already, why it's important to act now. Joining me today is the vice president of our strategy group, Pat St. Laurent. Pat, welcome. Thank you. First things first, Pat, wanted to ask a few questions about you before we get started uh, talking about today's topic. Um, what is the strategy group and what do you do as vice president? Well, we are more an innovation group than a strategy group. Okay. So we, we spend our time researching unmet needs for customers of expediters and customers who we might have that are not expediters customers. Mm -hmm. And we, we create ideas for new businesses that would satisfy those unmet needs. And then we work them through the pipeline to the point at which they either fade away because we're not going to do it or they become new uh, startups that would be under the expediter's umbrella. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how long has this team been around and what are some things that we can talk about that are exciting? Sure. For you right well, now? <laughs> we've been around about five years. Okay. Uh, it takes a long time to seed new companies that you really want to succeed. Uh, a lot of startups who, who go prematurely into a scale and they realize that the business they started is unsustainable. Mm -hmm. And we would like to not be those companies. We'd like to be one a company that produces successful startups. So we spend more time on our due diligence. We spend more time on our customer research. And uh, so we're, we've been working on a handful of things, eight or nine. Uh, one has succeeded. There's another one right behind it, getting ready to launch. And there's another three or four that are all sort of in the pipeline moving mm -hmm. forward. So Very exciting. So I've been with the company for about 11 years now, and I've always seen you as just one of those folks here who just knows a lot. You know, you've, your, your name, I feel like, is pretty established within the organization. I wanted to know, how did you get to that point? Uh, where has your career taken you? Where did you start? And what's been motivating you? Well, well, I started in 1978, if you can believe that. So I'm coming up on my 44th full year in this industry. Wow. So let's, let's start with that. Uh, I came into this business like a lot of people did in the 70s by accident uh, because nobody did a choice to do a career in logistics in 1978. <laughs> I can promise you that. Um, and, and what happened is I started in, in freight forwarding operations. So I learned about the way that shipments move around the world. And I spent a few years doing that. Then I went out and started, uh, then I moved into a sales role and started getting more interaction with clients on what they were up to and where they were going. Um, so fast forward 25 years or so mm -hmm. uh, of uh, freight forwarding and logistics provider management. And I pivoted into more of a supply chain role, supply chain and supply chain technology, which is which I did for 20 years. Uh, and that is what I do today. So customer supply chain structure management operations and the technology that supports those activities. That's fascinating. I actually uh, took your supply chain fundamentals course um, here at Expires and uh, it helped me really understand the business at large and just how the world kind of works in some ways, how, how we go about moving things. Uh, it was just really fascinating. So yeah, that's uh, the wealth of knowledge that you have is, is incredible. So I'm excited to hear today too, not only the knowledge, but also the wisdom that you may have built up over the last couple of years in particular, since so much has happened. So we've covered it a couple of times, but resilience, what does it mean to you? And what does it mean in the context of global supply chain? Sure. Well, so resilience has been around as a topic for supply chain leaders for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, it just never made it to the level of importance that it did now. Uh, it obviously made it, it made its uh, importance known because of COVID, which sure. I think everybody realizes. Um, 
What is resilience? Well, it, it's the ability for a supply chain to absorb a disruption and either regain its original form or gain a modified form that is competitive against peers who may struggle to. So in, in the world of COVID and the current supply chain, uh, there's very few companies have, that have regained their original form. Uh, most have modified their form. So the trick is to be able to modify your form as quickly as possible and to stay ahead of your competitors who you would hope are are transforming themselves slower than you are. So either someone's coming out with a modified form or going back to their original form. What are some of the characteristics of the original form that can continue to succeed in, in this day and age? Sure. Well, think about so the diversity of your sourcing, right? Uh, are you overly dependent on too few suppliers and, and or uh, suppliers in too few geographic locations? Um, are you over dependent on too few stocking locations? Um, are you, you know, are, are you dependent on a, a lead time that you're so used to in a JIT model and you realize that you can no longer rely on that lead time? Mm -hmm. Well, all of those things changed. So if you were able to, for example, to absorb a different level of cost for transportation and a different level of lead time, um, and you could still maintain customer satisfaction and you could still maintain the cost uh, the, the price that you sold goods at and therefore the margin that you keep, then you probably have succeeded through the course of the last couple of years. But there's been quite a few companies that were not prepared for that at all. Uh, they either waited too long to implement measures that they could uh, employ to mitigate the effect of the disruption, mm -hmm. or they they were just in denial and they, they thought they could ride it out. And then they realized that some of their competitors did not ride it out. They, they did some very slick maneuvers and they got access to your customers that, that you thought were going to be more patient than they were. And next thing you know, you're uh, losing market share. So resilience has a def definite competitive advantage, which I think anybody who is more resilient has uh, adequately discovered through the last couple of years. Yeah, 100%. Um, talking about this modified form then, um, I hear supply chain agility is 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 also another thing that's that's popular. Is that the same as resiliency? Are they related? How do they leverage off of each other? What's the relationship between agility and resiliency? So I, I would characterize agility as the ability to quickly muster people and processes and technology to react with some degree of heroics to a disruption. So if you're really agile, it theoretically means you can respond quickly and you can transform quickly. Sure. Whereas resilience, uh, and, and I'm painting a very simplified uh, difference, but resilience is more structural. So I design resilience into supply chain mm -hmm. and I design agility to transform when these disruptions happen to me. But you can't be, agility by itself won't save you from over-dependence on a supply source that, that suddenly stops. There's no level of agility that will save you there. Um, had you had redundancy in your supply sources, you could have said, okay, I'm gonna quickly pivot my dependency for this product on my second supplier instead of my first, because my first is in an affected area, my mm -hmm. second is not. Uh, but you, if you didn't have that second supplier at all, then you're basically stuck. You're crippled by the absence of goods coming from your prime or your only supplier. Right. So I think what a lot of companies uh, confuse the two or at least conflate the two, uh, for me, it's very distinct. 
this resilience is something that you design into your operating model and agility is much more around how you react when a disruption happens. Mm-hmm. When we were just talking about uh, companies going back to their original form and being able to succeed then, you you mentioned the word dependence a lot, You know, asking the question of, am I dependent on multiple partners and things like that? Is dependence an, an issue when it comes to trying to work towards resilience or trying to be more agile? Uh, 100% yes. Yeah. Uh, dependence on any entity that has its own ecosystem, its own life, it has its own finances, its own people, it's in, its, it's in a geographic area. There's risks everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and unless you are able to master the degree of risks that are, that are um, focused on the trading partners you do business with, and you feel comfortable that you've understood every single risk that they have in their enterprise, and you're willing to absorb that by consequence in your enterprise, because the dependence is so great, then fair and square. But um, you don't find too many companies that will say, I am completely comfortable that I understand the risk of trading partners on whom I am dependent. Mm-hmm. That is very unusual. So there's, a, there's an unhealthy degree of trust that trading partners are okay, and they may or may not be okay. So you, you shouldn't depend on them being okay. You either verify that they're okay, or you distribute your risk by reducing your dependency on any single one that might cripple your business. Yeah. We've seen a, I guess you could say a dramatic uptick uh, in, in the focus of this topic with customers. I mean, you're talking with customers plenty about about these, this very thing. Um, what do you think precipitated it? I'll say there's a, there's a couple forces at play. Mm-hmm. Uh, for starters, years ago, uh, boards started really getting interested and in looking at enterprise risk related to supply chain. Sure. And uh, so there was pressure coming from boards on behalf of shareholders just to understand whether executives knew and were prepared to uh, build resilience into their supply chains. And uh, COVID and the supply chain disruptions that followed uh, pretty much uh, sped up the timeline, shall we say, Mm -hmm. right? So there was an existing degree of attention being paid to it, but all of a sudden, you know, it, everything was on fire and it was like, here we go. Uh, the sea levels and the boards were, were all very, very interested at examining the steps companies had taken to build resilience in because the absence of resilience was attributable to some of the financial problems that people had in the last couple of years. So, What would you say then that uh, the leadership for these companies were, were looking for from from their internal teams as opposed to the answers that they're looking for from their uh, their, their partners, their service providers? Well, it, I guess even asking about teams, right? So a lot of the steps you would take to be resilient uh, are not really dependent on people. They're, they're more structural. So do I have diversified supply? Do I have diversified demand? When you think of the people and the trading partners, the biggest question is, are my trading partners a weak link? So do I have too few service providers servicing a critical area of my business? Uh, and in the, maybe not too few. Do I have a single one, right? And if that single one for any reason goes down, am I, am I crippled, right? Am I out of business? Um, the trading partners who contribute to the data environment, bearing in mind that data, access to data is a very significant enabler to agility. You can't make quick decisions on how to transform your company if you struggle to get the data that you need to make good decisions, Mm -hmm. right? 
So um, I think the the uh, the trading partner diversity is one aspect. Like you know, don't be over dependent on too few. Um, but also the trading partner's ability to to uh, stay with you when a disruption happens and keep pace with what you're going through uh, is a struggle, right? You want to be a, a, a you want to go fast, and your trading partners aren't equipped to go fast. Uh, and it's not a, really a time to change partners in the middle of a rapid agile transformation, which a lot of people found themselves in. Mm -hmm. The dynamic between um, whether it's a supply chain experts or teams uh, for a company that has to kind of relay this information to leadership, do you get the impression that company leadership, C-suite levels are like rolling their sleeves up and working with with these teams who have to manage supply chains for the companies? Or is it more of a reporting to and and having to answer for themselves? Sure. I, I would say that today more than ever, uh, I don't know if working with, but they're actively involved. Right. Uh, I don't think, if, if you think, imagine resilience, if you were to do a bottoms up approach on resilience, you would find people, you know, getting hold of initiatives that they think are worthy and running them up the chain and mm-hmm. building a business case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say that that's not a very healthy way of building resilience. Um, because if, if your project has to produce an ROI, well, generally it is not. It's going to produce a loss because you're going to be insuring the company against disruption by spending money on resilience as a general statement. It's very easy to say, I'm going to just depend 100% on the one low-cost supplier because mm-hmm. my profit motive has me thinking that's a good thing until he's not there anymore. Right. So inevitably, dual sourcing means adding cost. So you're adding cost to protect against disruption. And that is not an enviable place to be on a bottoms up pitch to somebody at a C level who doesn't already agree that it's a good thing to do. So I think that uh, C levels right now are extremely, um, let's say motivated to add resilience. And with that, the mindset should be, I'm willing to invest in it. Mm-hmm. So if the if the mission coming down to supply chain people and procurement people and everybody is, you know, bring me some initiatives that will increase our resilience and let me paint the picture to shareholders through the board um, that we've done some very smart steps to protect our company. Uh, that's, I think, a really sound way to go. What would you say is some of these, I guess, proposals or initiatives that could be brought up to leadership? What makes them a hard sell? Ooh, well, how how resilient do you want to be? I guess it's like an insurance policy, right? <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, it, it's because you can't really tie a financial benefit to it, right? Um, but the ones who got hurt the worst can certainly tie tie a financial consequence to it. Absolutely. I would say, like I always say, the metaphor is like the best time to buy a house alarm is right after you've been robbed <laughs> because you're very sensitive to the damage <laughs> and you therefore don't care how much things cost. Right. right. And a lot of companies in today's environment are in the, I don't care how much it costs, just do it mindset, but that won't last. Uh, so what what the companies, uh, companies who are in the, the risk business mm-hmm. are trying to do their very best to increase this sort of uh, the sensitivity to the presence of constant disruptive risk. There's been an endless stream of them going on for the last, I don't know how long. They seem to be getting more frequent uh, and the disruptive natures are either getting bigger or they're becoming wildly unpredictable. So uh, to wait and just go, we'll deal with it when it happens is probably a practice that is uh, 
losing popularity. Mm -hmm. So I think the uh, hospitality for resilience initiatives are is, is at an all-time high. So if I were a supply chain leader, I would be striking while the iron's hot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and if I was trying to do things that I thought were smart, that my sea levels never thought were smart, this would be the time to... Uh, <laughs> To go back to the uh, to the table. I mean, yeah, the, the material impact is, is has been clear, but this is, these are existential questions. It yes, seems like, yeah, for sure. So then, let's say we're getting started then to talk to leadership, um, or leadership wants to then understand the level of resiliency that they want to shoot for, or what they're comfortable with. How does one? How does a company go about that? Well, I guess I, I, to start with, you know, you look at your operating model mm -hmm. through the lens of resiliency, and you ask yourself the question: you know, is my is my sourcing model, uh, does it have sufficient resiliency? Have I distributed my supply across the suitable number of sources and or in a suitable number of uh, sort of s geographic places? Like am I, am I solely dependent on China when, when there's so much rhetoric around what may or may not impede trade with China? Uh, or am I in China and India and Vietnam? And I'm like, well, okay, I've, I've got a pretty good diversity there. I can shift as needed. So I'm feeling good about that. Now let's switch over to my inventory. Well, I've got, you know, $100 million worth of inventory in two buildings. What if one burns to the ground? Am I out of business? Or can I sustain my customer uh, order fulfillment through the second one? How quickly can I replace the inventory that was lost? Are my manufacturing lead times six months or are they 60 days, right? All those questions. So you think about the operating model bit by bit through the lens of resilience and you ask yourself the question, am I or am I not at a comfortable place mm -hmm. in this area? And if I'm not, uh, then that is the target of an initiative. But on balance, what you might find is that there's a there's a link in the chain that has a disproportionate amount of weight and resilience, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, and, and and maybe that one deserves more attention, right? So I can set up some redundant, you know, some redundancy so that I feel better about a dependency on one thing, but I've got two different channels I can move it through. So there's there's a lot of different ways you can go. And and it makes me want to ask: Is it possible to over-engineer resilience? Sure. Yeah. What does that look like? Uh, a lead box, <laughs> right? Where where you are risk free. Yeah. Uh, there's no such thing, right? Sure. So, and, and let's face it: I mean, business leaders are paid to balance risk and right. to try to get just to find the right place to be. So, mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, I, I would say the right place to be is wherever you're comfortable, and you'll know how right you were <laughs> when the disruption strikes. Right. Right. And over the course of you know, let's call them mini disruptions. You know, things that last a month and disrupt the flow of goods, but they're not existential. Uh, and you go, okay, well, we battle tested that plan and it worked well or it didn't. And you learn and adjust, learn and adjust, right? Mm -hmm. So not to say that a lead box is the ultimate goal here, but it sounds like true resilience is hard to attain. You cannot be completely risk-free. However, it's it's still a goal you can work towards, right? Um, but to work towards that, we got to start moving somehow. So how do we start moving? And then also when we come across certain obstacles or certain things that get in the way, um, what do you think is the best way to go about mitigating them or getting around them? Well, I think that, you know, that what gets in the way is, is probably... A, a level of denial <laughs> that that uh, the worst is behind us, mm -hmm. and and so we're you know hey listen that that would have been a great idea a year ago Chris you know why didn't you come to me with that brilliant resilience initiative uh, before COVID <laughs> but now that it's over 
you know, we don't need to worry about doing that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, until we do, right? And uh, the, again, the, 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 the one thing that I don't think anybody can deny is that disruption is, is going to be constant, unpredictable, and the impact of it will be highly variable, some severe, some less severe. But to, to imagine that, that the worst is behind us is, is definitely folly. It is decidedly not behind us. There's many, many things that are still going to happen. So I, I don't think it's an option to build resilience in. The only question is degree. And again, I think the, the degree is how much, it's like how much cost am I willing to invest in marketing? when the return on marketing for some companies is very nebulous. So right. he's like, well, you can't find an ROI. You just have to spend as much as you're comfortable with, right? And um, and as much as your shareholders are comfortable with and your board is comfortable with and, and just move on. Mm -hmm. And then you'll realize through the course of testing it with actual disruptions, you'll realize whether you uh, over or underdid it. Right. For example, if you have suppliers in three Asian countries that are serving up product perfectly for you, you're making profit, but you think, you know, just in case everything goes, you know, in Asia goes wrong. So I'm going to set up some U.S. suppliers that actually make product in the U.S. And it's expensive, but I'm going to balance that cost out against the whole. And I'm going to say for resilience, this is a good idea. Mm -hmm. um, by about year five of doing that, when you've spent $100 million that you would not have spent and nothing ever goes wrong in China or mm -hmm. Vietnam or India, you probably are saying to, my, saying to yourself, why the heck did I do that? <laughs> you know, And uh, that's the point at which you may just say, okay, enough, we're going to stop. Mm -hmm. And then Murphy's Law will be visiting <laughs> upon you very quickly. <laughs> right. Right. So it, it's one of those things. You, you, you either commit to it and you sustain it in spite of constantly worrying that you may be wasting money. Mm -hmm. uh, hey, I haven't had a car accident in 10 years. And every time I get my car insurance bill, I don't wonder whether I should cancel it. Right. right. <laughs> That's the same mentality. You yeah. just have to accept it and just keep going. Yeah, absolutely. We're a couple of years well past the, the, the start of the pandemic, right? I mean, we're recording this in 2022 uh, or towards the end of it. Are there still any reasons a company would not start its own assessment into and looking into its own resilience or improving its resilience? Like what are the valid reasons you feel like that, that makes sense to hold off or to, to delay or to even just uh, not invest as much? Well, um, I guess it depends who you're asking. So if you're <laughs> sure. asking a C level, uh -huh. uh, I can't imagine that there's any reason. If you're asking somebody who's, you know, three or four tiers down, um, my guess would be, why they would not start is because they are predicting that they will not succeed in getting anything done. Mm. So they're they're imagining that the C-suite will say no, and they therefore don't bother trying. Right. Uh, and I, you know, again, I I think that you know now is the time to get some fuel and some energy behind initiatives that bring resiliency to the sea levels, even if they weren't thinking about. This, the initiative that you had in mind until you showed up uh, because there's no better time to get the hospitality you need. And, you know, it's always better uh, to show up in the C-suite with an idea that they like than to implement one that they like that you never heard of. I sure. mean, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's good for everything, mm -hmm. including your career. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> um, 
you know, you mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation around uh, companies coming out as a modified form or some returning to their original. No matter what, we're all trying to shoot for pre-pandemic performance in some regard, right? Do you believe pre-pandemic performance can be reached or maintained with, uh, I guess, post-pandemic strategies or, or transformations? Um, I feel like right now things are at the point where they will not go back to how they were pre-pandemic. Um, whether it's capacity, freight costs, realignment of different industries, rearrangement of priorities, I don't see people going back to the old way. Mm. So the new reality is that certain commodities uh, are going to be very hard to source overseas because the freight rates are too high. Um, certain um, countries are going to do really well. Companies that Countries that manufacture good products at a good price that have been underexploited uh, through from sourcing organizations uh, are going to be in a moment where they're going to be welcoming all these procurement leaders who are coming to look for potential new suppliers, yeah. right? And I think Vietnam is a great example, India as another one. So, but even the lead times today, shipping by air or ocean are, are longer and they aren't showing signs of shortening much anytime soon. So the, the inventory holdings that you need to satisfy customer demand when you've got containers sitting in queues or crossing oceans really slowly um, are, requires is a very different capital requirement that you have to hold on to that much inventory. Mm -hmm. And are you getting that money back from customers by raising the price of goods? Not so easy, especially in an inflationary environment. People are getting dinged on things that they can't control. And they can control whether they buy or don't buy the TV you imported. Right. Right. Absolutely. So it's it's hard to imagine that uh, the absorption of a considerably higher freight cost to import goods is going to be met by a customer who's willing to pay more for those goods because of it. So I think we're in a, I think we're in a new paradigm, and it's not going back to the pre-pandemic one. Sure. And yeah, like the pandemic kicked up the dust. Right. It brought a lot of change. To you, I guess, what is a what is a, a world look like where the dust has settled and things have calmed down? How does how does that world work for you? Well, um, gosh, more diversity in sourcing, mm -hmm. no more diversity in uh, sales channels and in the locations where your goods are bought. Mm -hmm. uh, more technology. So uh, with more data, more more connectivity between tra trading partners so that you can see through data a connected web of companies that are all in some form or fashion uh, winning or losing based on the end customer who buys a product. Mm -hmm. um, gosh, it's just different. Yeah, it's going to be different. It'll be different skill sets are going to be needed to thrive in the new market. Yeah. You know, cost models, uh, everything's going to change or it has changed and I don't think it's going back. So, you know, I look at um, logistics, transportation, supply chain as kind of this this hidden industry, at least when, uh, growing up for me and from uh, for my own self, I, I always kind of saw it as a hidden world. You know, I talk to my friends and before the pandemic, no one gave any second thought to shipping. <laughs> but now it's it's everywhere. Um, people are everyone's feeling the pain of it um, and how it's been impacted. When you think of the consumer, and I'm thinking of uh, like my father-in-law listens to this podcast, right? He's he had to have listened to a whole you know thirty some minutes of us chatting through this. Why should he care about what's going on behind the scenes of supply chain? Why should he care about what we've discussed today? Uh, what can he take away from something like this? What can the consumer take away from this conversation? I guess I'm with you, by the way, just for a way longer time. <laughs> I, I don't even think my wife of forty years really knows what I do for a living. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I guess when you look at an empty store shelf and you think, you know, people say, oh, supply chain issues. Like, what does that mean, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, does it mean the goods are just stuck in transit? Doubtful. It's, it's, I wish it were that simple. Sure, sure. They're on a truck that hasn't got to Kansas City yet. Right. No, it's on its really. way. Yeah. <laughs> not really. <laughs> so um, it's because the, uh, for a lot of companies, the decisions that they made on how they're going to design their supply chain, those are the decisions that are resulting in the empty store shelf. Mm. Not the truck that's delayed in transit from a Phoenix distribution center to a storefront in Kansas City. That, that is not what's causing the empty shelf. Uh, generally speaking, obviously there's exceptions, but the 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 overall design of a supply chain that is able to successfully produce and flow goods from their supply to their demand uh, is a supply chain that is either running today and you don't have empty shelves, or it's obstruct massively obstructed by disruptions that you could not overcome with resilience. So COVID problems in a manufacturing site factory shuts down or it's running at half capacity, you get no goods. Uh, that's not as big a problem unless that's your only factory. Right. Right. Uh, the Shanghai port went, or the Ningbo port, excuse me, in China went to, I believe, half staff because of COVID uh, protocols mm-hmm. and the goods, the, the containers couldn't get through the port very fast. Well, if every single one of your containers you buy from China comes through Ningbo, then you just lost half of the speed of your goods getting out. Right. And you could go down the list and think of a thousand reasons why a design decision has put you at risk of an empty store shelf. It kind of puts the phrase uh, by design in a whole new light. <laughs> Whether for good or for bad. This store shelf is empty by, by design. design. <laughs> in parentheses. Poor design. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, Pat, I I know that you wrote a, a white paper talking a little bit about this with a couple of um, key drivers and stuff to to look into doing an assessment. Could you talk a little bit about that? What could folks uh, expect to see when they when they dig this up and read it? Sure. I, well, I started by thinking about well, what are all the uh, areas of a supply chain that have a direct link to resilience, right? So in other words, if you wanted to be super resilient, what are all the things you would have to do? Mm -hmm. And in this white paper, I've basically characterized what all of those things are. And I'm sure I missed a few, but there's a dozen or so on there. It's, it's, yeah, it's pretty comprehensive. Yeah, and and the idea is that if 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 you distribute your supply and go, okay, we're good because we now have a stronger degree of supply continuity Mm -hmm. in the face of a disruption, but you do nothing else uh, what might end up happening is the good old whack-a-mole game where you, 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 know, you knock down that one mole mm-hmm. and you think, okay, everything's fine until the other one pops up and you realize that supply continuity by itself is not an answer to resilience. It's just one piece of the puzzle. So in the white paper, I guess I'm kind of arguing that if you're going to do resilience, you got to do resilience, meaning you got to hit on all of them and at least understand where you are. And if you don't have vulnerabilities, check, you're great. That's that's awesome. But if you do, uh, then you should look at all of them. So I'm, I guess I'm advocating for uh, an assessment of your degree of resilience on every one of these topics and maybe others you think of that I didn't think of because I don't operate a supply chain. Um and figure out the risk profile. And then with that risk profile, you sit down and, and you talk about the company's risk profile in total, and you you sort of visit the question about what should we do to de-risk some of these things? 
uh, and how much money are we willing to invest in the mm -hmm. de-risking, yeah. right? But the assessment, of course, is where it starts, right? And it has to be enterprise. You, a supply chain is the ultimate system. It's got a thousand moving parts. They're all interconnected. Uh, and if you look at a moving part and you optimize in a silo, you will surely lose because you are going to forget the mole in the corner that is going to pop up the second you pop this one down. <laughs> <laughs> Pat, thank you so much for this time and oh, for for, uh, for talking me through this. This was this was really cool. Awesome, uh, really appreciate I hope it. it helps. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've got questions or want to learn more about today's topic, check out the show notes for more information. And before you go, make sure you're subscribed on whatever podcast app you're using so you won't miss the next episode. To learn more about Expediters, you can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or simply visit us at expediters.com. Take care, and I'll see you next time.